All right. Welcome to Project Herpetoculture Podcast. This is episode 54, and I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined as always by the dashing and charismatic Philip Leitz of Arids Only. And I'm really excited for the show today. We've got an excellent guest. I'm excited to introduce them. But before we do, I'm going to go through our housekeeping. And first, I want to give a shout out and appreciation to Charlie, who edits our audio. And I also want to mention Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. It continues to be a pleasure to be on this platform. And I also want to give a shout out to our sponsors. So we've got Custom Reptile Habitats. They've been with us since day one, and they produce some premium PVC reptile enclosures and also have a whole product line, you know, with Universal Rocks products, all kinds of stuff like that. So if you're in the market for any of that and you're interested in making a purchase, if you do through if you do so through the link in our bio, we'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. And that's always appreciated on this end. Um, we also have cold-blooded caffeine, and they are roasters of premium coffee from across the globe. And they donate a small percentage of each bag of coffee sold to conservation and coffee growing regions where you can also find some incredible herpetofauna. So check them out and use the code Project Herp for 10% off your order there. And then we also have fairy tale dragons. And that's Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, true legends of herpetoculture. And it means a lot that they're supporting our show. So um, shout out to them. If anyone's in the market for like premium quality bearded dragons, um, look no further than fairy tale. And also just check them out, follow them on social media and see all the crazy stuff they're up to. There's all kinds of cool stuff happening over there. So Real yeah. Talk. Yeah. And if you're interested in supporting the show directly, we always welcome subscribers on Patreon. And we also now have channel memberships on YouTube. So that's a thing. Um, still figuring out exactly what that will mean, but just okay. another way to potentially support what we're doing over here. And all of it is appreciated. Of course, most of all, just your listenership, sharing, any feedback is always welcome. So with all of that out of the way, our very patient guests. I'm very pleased to introduce Liam Sinclair and Ellie Hills of Reptiles and Research and Hills Herptiles. Welcome. Hello. That was flawless. That was all <laughs> one take. Do you know how many times I have to say things over and over again to do an intro? I was just amazed at how it was just, it was just flawless the entire way through. I was like, that's 12 attempts for me. Hello. <laughs> Roy <laughs> Thanks, <has> a, Liam. <laughs> uh, Roy has an enviable charisma and sparkling wordplay. So it's... Uh, <laughs> and it I've done that enough times now, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's done it plenty of times. Um, well, so uh, thank you again, both of you, for taking the time to to meet and chat with us. It's kind of been a long time coming. I know we've we've um, sort of uh, uh, just chatted here and there and, and, and it had like little passing comments and things like that, but we've never had a chance to really like sit down and have like a proper conversation. So it's super exciting, um, especially considering we sort of share the same host network, which is great. Um, so as a way to kickstart things uh, in the conversation, we'd love to find out each of your um, individual origin story in herpetoculture. Like, how did you guys get started? What was, what was, when did you catch the bug? How did, how did that all unfold for, for each of you? You want to go first this time? It's normally me. Yeah. I can go first. Um, I've been keeping reptiles now since I was like 16, 17. Um, so that's, 
like nearly 10 years, maybe just over 10 years now. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little old. Um, <laughs> and I just, <laughs> it's just been always that thing that I was that kid in the that garden, crazy Steve Irwin fan. I think it's every child's origin, isn't it? Um, and I've been working with animals now since I was like 14. Um, and then I have studied all the way up to being a master's in zoology. Um, and then, yeah, through that university, Liam and I met. And then with that, we've been doing the more science stuff. So, yeah. Awesome. Great. Very nice. How about you, Liam? So I um, obviously went to the same uni to get the qualifications to be a zookeeper. And it was at the time I, I um, they were selling like praying mantis on site because they'd bred them in the in the, the zoo, shall we say, but also had like a pet shop license. So they were selling those to students to like offload them as well. Um, and I got really into the, the praying mantis. And then it was one of our lecturers was like, there's another weird person that likes mantis. Here's their email. So that's how me and Ellie met. Um, and then from there, I just went on to working in sort of reptile stores and things like that. Um, and this is the first year where I've not worked in a store, really. I had a gap in between, but I've been in a store, for, uh, reptile stores for a while. Um, for, I got my first snake um, and then just kind of spiraled. <laughs> That's it's a, more of like, a, like an official route in rather than like a, a kid thing at all. I was, I was definitely very old when I got my first snake compared mm-hmm. to like 14 things like that yeah what what uh just totally out of random curiosity what kind of snake was it uh Mexican black king snake still it's still above us oh, nice. still him. that's awesome very cool the praying mantis thing is that's pretty sweet I I love mantids they're pretty remarkable creatures that's a cool way to kind of get started and, and have like a foray into uh well I guess I wouldn't have expected somebody to make their way from mantids into culture, but it shouldn't be that bizarre. People kind of find their way from all, all angles, I suppose. Um, this is going to be, all, I have a, a sort of a similar background. I, I worked in reptile stores here uh, locally for a long time, but uh, something I, I'm curious, and this is a little random. I, we, I think I've asked maybe a handful of guests this question and it just be, and, and I like to ask it every now and again, when it comes to mind, because it was true for me, I got picked on and bullied relentlessly for being into herpetoculture, being into lizards, being into sort of all these sort of like dweeby biology topics. Did did either of you have that experience by chance at all? I mean, I was homeschooled, so I was literally just in the back garden doing whatever. So, yeah. Nice. It, it was optimal. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Damn. Yeah, I didn't experience anything like that, no. Oh man, okay, that's good. I'm really glad. I, I was gonna say bummer, but I don't mean that would be kind of a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Screw you, Liam. How horrible would that be? <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, I'm glad that you didn't have to endure that. I, so far, I don't really recall anyone else so far that I've asked that sort of answered in the affirmative. It's definitely mostly been mostly been me, but it, uh, it definitely got legitimately picked on for it, which is kind of weird to think about now but uh i guess at the time in the in the 90s and early 2000s people were getting picked on for just about anything uh, at least in my experience in my region so whatever um so with all of that in mind uh wh- when did when did um i guess this would be like a multifaceted question so like when did reptiles and research 
kind of become a, a kernel in, in, in your mind and, and something that you decided you wanted to develop and pursue in a, in a, you know, sort of a, like an, an official way. And, and did you have hesitations? Did you just dive right in right away? I mean, how, I'm curious how all that kind of came to be. You want the political answer? Or? <laughs> Hell no. Yeah. So, I, mean, I, really, no, I, really <laughs> I saw a YouTube video on YouTube and it pissed me off so much that it made me want to make, um videos just to correct it it was like top five lizards that don't need uv and it was like leopard geckos and crested geckos and i was just like ugh, it's like 2020 so i just got that annoyed that i um started reptiles and research and i literally called it reptiles and research because i was like what should i call it i couldn't figure it out and i was like what am i doing literally reptiles and, it's literally that simple that's why i call it reptiles and research because it was just like cramming to just make a channel just to make a a video just about just because i was like that irritated by something i saw on youtube and that's why it was like so quick and then after i was like okay that's quite fun making that video and then I kind of went from there but you can you can scroll back all the way to the all the way through in the reptile light in uh, facebook group and like find my original post ranting about the video i saw and then like um, Fran Baines and stuff I was like, well, why don't you make it make a channel or things like that? Mm, nice. That's cool. That's interesting. Nice. I guess that's uh that's like I love a uh like a combative approach, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's my CV. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious. What an interesting way to start it up. So so then I guess it's probably changed substantially since the you know that first video. I mean, do, do you feel like do you feel like you had any sense at all when you first made that that it would kind of grow and turn into what it, what it what it is now? It's weird because when I first started making videos, I didn't want to be on camera. Not because I was worried about being on camera, because I I, I wanted the emphasis to not be about a person and like look at me I'm on YouTube. I wanted it to be about the science and the animals. And, and it wasn't until like I got further in that I was like, this really isn't working. Like you look at the audience retention stuff. It was like really poor. And I was like, this isn't working. And then I made friends with people that were doing YouTube videos at that time. And they were like, you need to go on camera. And I was like, yeah, but that's not what I want to do. And then eventually they kind of like made me. And then from there, like the, the stats were higher. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I think people need a face to follow like mm -hmm. the information might be the main thing the animals might be the main thing but they still need like an identity and a person that's told them something to almost have that trust i feel like if it's like if faceless there's almost like this void there um and i think people struggle to connect with it yeah yeah that's interesting i don't I, yeah it, people really you know uh i understand the hesitation to wanting to be on camera it's like it's it's not it feels a little, it does feel a little bit like, uh, like, Hey, look, look at me, look at me. I'm here doing something. And it's, it's, it can be a, such a, a weird, like a weird feeling. Like every once in a while I'll go back and I'll look at, um, you know, some of the footage from say like the first time I was on Dylan's show or the last time I was on Dylan's show or anytime we do one of these and I'll go on and I'll look at my own damn recording and I'll be horrified. I'll be mortified just by mm. like, faces I make or the movements or the gestures that I make and things like that. I'm like, Oh God. But I, and I sort of, I feel kind of grateful that I'm not sitting there ruminating over, over it in conversation, you know, cause you could really get, you could get eaten alive by that sort of thing. So I, I, I relate to that uh, particular 
hesitance to be on film. It's especially mm-hmm. when you know it's out there and it's never going to go away. You're like, Oh, good. Great. Perfect. Every, every blemish is just going to be out there for everybody to notice for just immortalized. It's all part of the canon now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So um, I, I know we're going to get into a, a, a lot of sort of what you're doing with the, with the show and, and sort of what some of your guys' goals and everything uh, might be, but I'm also curious, um, you know, there's maybe a little bit more like a softer question, but do you have a favorite episode that you guys have done? Is there something that just stands out for you as like a memorable one that just means a lot to you or just, uh... yeah. Um, for me, it's, um, Beardy Vet. Mm. When we had Beardy Vet on the, the thing that really, um, I, that makes it really memorable to, to me is that he basically says no to everyone, but then actually asked us if he could come on. And I was wow. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that one, <laughs> that one's my favorite. And I absolutely grilled him for four hours. Like I, I literally spent like two weeks. I was like, I'm going to make sure I meticulously, meticulously get every single little bit of information that I could possibly get. Um, and we recorded for four hours. It wasn't even conversation. Wow. I was like, this question, this question, this question. Give me the give me what I need. There was yeah. literally a point where it was like, my children, I have to go feed them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay, five more questions. <laughs> Oh, that's <laughs> he was like, I've locked him in a bedroom so they'd be quiet. I was like, I should probably let them out now. <laughs> he was like, haven't you ever taught your children about the benefits of intermittent fasting yet? It's the perfect time. <laughs> oh, that's great. Is that the same for you, Ellie? Or do you have a different episode or anything like that? Um, I think for me, it was the Kevin Arbuckle one. As a student, mm. I read literally every single one of his papers. I cited him everywhere. I was obsessed and then to have a conversation with him, it felt so surreal. And then he read um, my article that I wrote and to like be told that he'd like read something that I wrote. And it was just a bit of a starstruck moment for me. Nice. Like, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Really great. Really, really nice. Well, um, I have I have a handful of other questions, but I, well, I mean, I've got a lot of other questions, but I want to kind of, I, I talk a lot. If, you, if you've listened to the show, <laughs> talk a little bit too much and today maybe is a nice exception because i haven't been able to be on the last two um just because it's a scheduling conflict so um i was actually just planning to sit back and let you let you go off the rails with this one phil oh man don't do that don't don't do that (laughs) you you gotta i i'll get like if if we don't if if you don't ask us some questions roy i'll feel i'll feel oh no it's good i got questions i got questions um well, I mean, again, kind of like on the on like the the podcast more generally, some things I'm curious about. I mean, maybe this is for later on in the conversation, but I'm just going to ask it now anyway. But like, what have you learned, you know, from from like producing this show? I mean, you've been doing it for a while now. Like, the show has changed and grown over time. And um, I mean, even just like in the technical aspects of it, I'm curious about what you've learned about like hosting a show. You know, because I still feel like a neophyte to this whole thing. So I'm always curious to see what other people are learning. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the the technical aspect, like learning how to do the audio, learning how to edit, learning how to do lighting. I mean, like the amount of money that's sat in front of me now was set up for all of this is insane. Um, It's it's a whole skill set. You're not just being like 
you tell you tell someone you're doing like a podcast or a YouTube channel, and they're like, oh yeah, cool. And they expect it to be like, yeah, film some videos and upload it. But it's like, no, you're the lighting guy, you're the you're the audio technician, you're the you're the video editor, you're the you're the uh, on person person on camera person, you're the you're the cameraman. Like, it's just so much technical to learn. Like, even just like each one of those things, like individual jobs that someone has to spend like years in learning, and you've got to try and learn it all at once to be that one man band. Um, and I got pretty fast at it, and I got pretty good at it. I mean, I, I edit animals at home podcast now, so nice. So clearly doing all right job, I suppose. In terms of the animal stuff, like I think the one podcast that like really stuck with me was um, Heather from Fairy Tale Dragons, just talking about like breeding for like constitution and body conformation and all of these things and like how stringent her exclusion inclusion criteria for like holdbacks are and like the hardcore line breeding she's doing at like a level that I think most people aren't I think she's probably in like the top 10% of like people that are like breeders in like the hobby mm. I think sorry. there's um a lot of people who are breeding for like color and it's like cool but there's she has just gone color as well as make sure the body proportions are right, make sure behaviorally she, that's what she wants, blah, 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 health, blah, blah, blah. Like, just it's the, it's the next stage of herpes culture, I think. Like people like her and like Dragoon Geckos that was on uh, Animals at Home, that's where I want to see herpes culture go. And like people like that, I just was, I was in kind of in awe of listening to Heather talk about her projects, uh, detail that I think I hadn't. I interviewed someone for at least before um and that in, that interview still sticks in my head about like what mm-hmm. i think breeding could be um and I now now i kind of like almost see breeder as like an umbrella term and there's lots of subcategories beneath it um oh, yeah. but that's slightly controversial from what i think but what no, about no. You? I, I mean oh sorry no no go ahead go ahead my bad well one like what episode was your do you think you learned the most from? I just think it's a journey. I think every mm-hmm. every episode you learn something different. So yeah, it's really hard to just pinpoint because I don't think I've ever gone away from one and gone, oh, I didn't learn anything that was a waste of time because it's never like that at all, ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's that's interesting. You know, it's it's funny. Um, I've thought a lot about this as well. Uh so many conversations with Heather and with Ron in general, and with obviously with plenty of other people, it's it's like you gain this uh, really refined appreciation for the, for the methodology and the ways they approach what they're doing. And it definitely goes, you know, I mean, it can cut many different directions. I mean, there's definitely, um, as, as you said, Liam, I mean, there's, it's breeder is an umbrella term with lots of different subsets. I totally agree with that. Um, You know, it's funny. I have a, I have a golden retriever dog and, uh, and a couple of, um, horrific house panthers who should just go away forever. He's terrible cats, but uh, (laughs) we, I grew up um, kind of having this idea. I don't really remember where it came from and I don't know uh, like what, what started the whole thing, but I had this idea that a breeder was a bad thing and that, you know, I didn't want to get, I, you know, buying a cat or a dog from a breeder was like, a bad, it was just like a moral bad because there are so many needy dogs and cats out there. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily, I, I don't think it's a, 
I don't think it's the wrong idea in, in some regard. It's like, yeah, you, you sure. Like if you can adopt, that's a great thing to do too. Like there are neat, there are animals very much in need uh, of various kinds. I, I have no, I certainly have no, no, no problem with that. But there was a point when we got this golden retriever and it was, wasn't even a, it was just sort of an accident. My, my mom had uh, decided to get a golden retriever puppy. They found a breeder. They went to the breeder to pick up the dog that is mine and saw that there was her brother, Henry um, had uh, he was there at the breeders uh, still as a puppy and had a broken leg. And what had happened was the breeder bred both golden retrievers and Bernie's mountain dogs. And Mm. one of the Bernie's mountain dogs um, in some, I don't know, some chaotic situation had stepped on Henry's leg and broken it and fractured it. And the, they obviously it was an accident. It happens. The dog was totally fine. They took it to the vet, uh, obviously as any responsible breeder would and, uh, all was fine, but the people who had uh, intended to buy Henry decided not to get him because his leg was broken. And my mom thought that was just an abs, just morally abject in the highest order. So she was like, no, I'm getting that dog and we're going to give this one to Philip. And so I like, I get this sort of rushed phone calls. Like, do you want to, do you want a puppy? And I was like, yes. You know, yes. Dude, who's gonna? I'm not gonna say no to a puppy, right? And uh, and so anyway, we get this dog, and and the the reason I tell this story is because that breeder was the you know it was one of the first breeders I'd ever interacted with, and she went above and beyond. Like we got this dog, she had one single pee accident in the house once, one time was like just she's the perfect animal, and so much of what of that transition and what we got out of the animal was a result of her efforts, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then when we got our cats, it was the same kind of thing. We just, we sought out a breeder. Um, we, we've, we vetted the breeder, made sure they did congenital heart testing because the cats we have are hybrids and they can have that. And it, you know, all these things. Right. And those experiences really changed the way I thought about what I'm doing with my reptiles. It was like, Oh, this is a totally different thing. And, um, having had, I know this is getting a little long winded, but having had so many experiences with countless breeders and individuals over my upbringing in herpetoculture who misinformed me about what I bought or like, weren't, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally, we're not, we're not transparent about something that was going on with the animal or weren't helpful in, in what to do with it. And weren't, you know, um, weren't available when I had an issue or a concern or a question. Um, I mean, it just really affected the way I think about what I'm doing. And so, you know, you talk with, talk about Heather and you hear her recount the fact that for just about every dragon she sells, she'll spend hours and hours and hours and hours on the phone with them helping them get an understanding of what they're doing, helping them through their problems. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, you said it best. That's the gold standard. That's, that's, that's like about the best any of us can hope for. And, um, uh, you know, I, I also hope that, that there's more of that in the future. I also have thoughts and feelings around kind of having an understanding of, of why it's taken some people a little while to get there, you know, like, and I, and I don't mean that people shouldn't focus on those things early on, but like, I can totally 
I I have seen and can can imagine scenarios in which you really just have to get them to breathe in the first place. Like they, like some of that some I feel like sometimes some of those other more more uh, like refining factors might not even be able to come into the picture until you get like a really well-defined methodology for getting production in the first place. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have thoughts about that. Well, I think that, see, I've gone down this rabbit hole with with the whole thing. Like I think some of the negative connotations of people that conjure up because of reader is because I've broken it down to three subcategories in my mind. I think there's like old school, the traditional sense breeder that like back in the day, like I've got like a book from like the 1930s talking about IG breeding and talking about whole, whole sections talking about line breeding, but then like cutting out any like, it calls it constitutional weakness, but what he's actually talking about is like removing like deleterious successive alleles from the, the gene pool, but he doesn't realise that yet because it's the 1930s and he's just reading a, doing a, reading a book, but but he was already there, like the hardcore level of like understanding that this book was like so intense and this old school like interpretation of a breeder to me and what like Heather is doing, like Dragoon Geckos. I mean, Dragoon Geckos is literally looking at like racehorse books of like like stud breeding and stuff and applying it to Olympic Geckos. Like above and like this whole new wave of like, but also what people were doing back in the day when they were like the truest sense of a breeder anyway. So I think there's a, the breeder in the traditional sense in that I, that I envision in my my own definition of what I want it to be anyway. And then I think there is people who are just reproducing pets. Like myself, mm-hmm. I've got a pair of Mexican black king snakes. I've had two clutches of her now. Um, I'm just reproducing pets. I'm not a breeder. I haven't got lines. I haven't got like diversifying gene pools and I'm just reproducing a few pets. And I think there's also another category of like within it that's just millers they're just churning out reptiles regardless of like quality underbites and bearded dragons like puppy nose syndrome like head pinching and royal pythons just just milling and people have mm-hmm. so many diff- like negative experiences with like the millers that the because everyone's like oh it's just breeders and we don't actually separate things out it's like it was still breeders so then again breeder gets used as a negative term yeah mm-hmm. but we allow that to happen because we aren't pushing forward with the traditional sense of what a breeder is and we're allowing like the Miller aspect to be dragged with it. So it's, it's, it's kind of a case of like, why aren't people getting to this next step? Because we're allowing it to be like, oh, to be classed as a breeder at this one equal level. All you have to do mm-hmm. is reproduce reptiles and just churn them out. So I think that separating these things out helps people understand that there's a difference and there's a difference in quality. Because at the moment, I think a lot of people are just like a breeder is a breeder when it's really not. Oh yeah, for sure. That's yeah. Well said, you know, um, there's a, it's actually kind of funny. And, and I, I think about, so there was another bearded dragon breeder. When I, when I first got involved with, with reptiles, I was working with bearded dragons as well. And, and early on there was a breeder uh, named Vicky Dashu, Robin Vicky Dashu, bearded dragons and other creatures. At least that's what it was called at the time. I, I think that I believe if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they're still around. I haven't spoken with either of them in a long time. But I remember having conversations with Vicky in the early 2000s when I was just a kid, you know, I was like, I don't know, 15, 14 years old. And she was having some of the same conversations back then uh, talking about, well, you know, we had this one dragon and all of his offspring were really skittish. Just they all like a huge percentage of them were. So we just we pulled him out. We're not breeding him anymore. Right. She would talk about um, the importance of like always choosing stronger animals over more their more colorful 
say, you know, weaker counterparts, right? Um, and I remember having that concept, you know, some of those concepts laid down, at least conceptually back in the day. But then, um, you know, some, something I think is is also true of, of, of herpetoculture and, and might, you know, or at least, okay, I don't want to say it's true because I don't really know, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm speculating here, but uh, I have this hunch that um, even though I love that we have so many breeders who are, say, um, co-opting, for, for lack of a better term, or like borrowing, adopting other terminology and nom- nomenclature from other kinds of breeding practice, whether it be horses, as you mentioned, dogs, cats, pigeons, chickens, like any other long-term domesticated creature. I feel like whether purely because of the range of animals we're working with in herpetoculture, the newness to the project of herpetoculture in, in terms of time horizons, whatever these things are, uh, either though that same kind of methodology is it, it, it maybe incomplete or, or, or at least herpetoculture is gonna, is gonna, um, gonna have to use them in, in different ways. You know, it's like, if you're working with, with, with horses, um, or maybe I should just use dogs as a, dogs are probably easier. Cause I don't know that much about horses, frankly, uh, they're awesome, but uh, it's certainly not where my, my knowledge base lies. But, you know, if we're talking about dogs, um, thing terms like purebred or a line of, or any of these, you know, some of those, those really well-defined terms, or I mean, not well-defined terms are, are exactly that they're not, they're, they're sort of amorphous. Like what is pure? What is a line? What is a, whatever these things are not, uh, they're, they're not very well-defined. And as you guys well know, within, within certain reptiles, it, it can be really, really challenging to get at the, it's sort of like the, the baseline of what that may be because we're dealing with localities, species, subspecies, and classification frameworks that regularly change. So I think it, it, it in, in, in this context, some of those, um, some and not all of those things at the very least maybe just don't do the same kind of justice that they do when we're talking about something like a dog but i think that's a really good thing i think it's really cool that we have this opportunity to like say all right this is how other things have kind of done it uh historically we have this other thing and that these these creatures that we're working with have maybe a degree of complexity that the, these other animals don't or 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 um uh, uh, sort of like a, a range of needs that these other animals don't in the same way. So it's going to, I think it's going to force us to evolve um, something a little different in a way. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think we're going to have to base breeding more on the line of what zoos have done because they're dealing with keeping a wild animal pure. But even then there's complexities because the best animals that breed in captivity are ones that are more in line to being coping better. And you are going mm-hmm. to naturally change it from that wild species, like how tigers in the UK are dumpier. They've got different coats. Our um, Rosalski wild horses are becoming more domestic looking. It naturally mm-hmm. starts to occur, even if we're not meaning to, because the ones that cope best, the ones that breed best, you start domesticating it, even if you're not trying. So oh, I, yeah. I'm really interested to see, like, in the next 20 years, what will a leopard gecko look like? Because we can't take any more from the wild. We're breeding them because they do well in captivity. At what point do we start calling them domestic? This is an interesting mm-hmm. 
I think people use line wrong as well. I, I think it's yeah. because people have joined herps culture and have heard the word line. They're like, oh, because it's my group of animals, it's a line. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. Like yeah. a line is like when you've created, you've got like an attribute that you're trying to proliferate and like you've got to a point right. where everything, every single time that comes out of those animals, it's that attribute you're looking for over and over and over again. It's you've got the the population of, of alleles in that group that's so refined and to a point of what you want, you're having like, it's coming out again and again and again, what you're asking for. Like if you're trying to do something and it's still coming out like, oh, like 25% to what you actually wanted, you might, you might say you're starting a project like, like years early on, but you can't call it a line yet because it's no different from anything else. But when it's substantially different from like, other populations in herb culture of the same animal, you've created a line because the, the population and the, the genes that are in your population are so manufactured in that way that you then it's a line. But I think people call things a line like way, way too early. Oh yeah, oh yeah, like what, like way too early on. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, uh, I may have, I can't remember if it was my last conversation with Dylan or, or maybe in more than one context, I kind of. I went off about this topic because people do it all the time. I see, I see people do this with euros. They'll say, they'll just offer up something and say, Oh, this is from my own lines. It's like, what lines? You just bred two wild caught animals together. They're not, it's not a line. There's, there's not a line. And, and even then it's like, it, 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 when, when someone uses the term, okay. Like at, at what point, like it's, it's not a, it's not uh it's like a blurry boundary. It's not, it's not a distinct, like either, or it's not a binary statement. It's like a, well, we're getting into the realm. Now we can call it a line, but people will, you know, if it's a straight line, people are walking it back and forth like mm. that. And, 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 um, and I, I think that the, the more there's ways of teasing apart that it, just the, just the terminology of line in and of itself, where it's like, well, it, it, it just lose it, at least from my perspective, it just like loses its, its solidity. The more you, you prize mm -hmm. it, it's like, okay, if it's this one group, why is it this one group and not any of the other animals that say shared the same, same lineage, same parentage, the same rough heritage, but just didn't look exactly right. And, you know, I mean, because you, you, you have countless examples of animals that don't look the way the breeder wanted them to, but then reproduce animals like, or I mean, but then produce animals that look the way the breeder wanted them to like you, unless, unless you're quite literally keeping every damn thing you produce forever and, and breeding every last thing you produce. I mean, it, there's so many variables that fall in. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally insane. I mean, even things like, um, and I mean, I get, okay. And, and in fairness, I'm sure I'll be getting into a topic that I don't, uh, isn't necessarily meant to, 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 to be like, like literal, but I even have problems with the concepts of species, right? Like we, everyone who pays attention to biology knows that the species is like a total, it's just a choice. I'm just going to draw a line in the sand right here. You know, we can, we can refine our ways of defining what a species is and is not, but you really, at the end of the day, what we're doing is just drawing a line. I'm, I'm a person and I'm going to say right when the genes start to look this way, this is now a Euromastix ornata and this is now a Euromastix ocellata. And, and yet we have all of this ideology around hybridization 
that can be in an instant flipped if a if a species is reclassified and grouped back with a larger grouping of animals or or um you know uh we have all these movements and, and i'm thinking primarily of of um uh well i guess i guess it happens in the united states too but it seems to be just slightly more popular in europe this locality specific or locality pure concept which i love it right like when i was working with collared lizards it made me feel really, really good that the five Baja collared lizards I had all were collected from within like a mile of each other. That's really cool. It's a neat thing to have in your head, but it's pure novelty. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 that is a, a, an entirely context and privilege based way of subdividing your animals and, and, and making a priority of one over another. I mean, like we take Euromastix ornata, for example, they come from Egypt, Israel, Jordan and all over the place. And there's no, in fact, it's, a, it's very likely to be a certainty that all of the shipments of Euromastix ornata into the United States over the last 50 years come from different places, probably from places that where the genes were separated by millennia and thousands of miles of geography. And yet it's not, it's not, um, it's not taboo to breed ornata to ornata, even if those genes would have never interacted, but it's taboo mm-hmm. to breed ornata to ornata filbii because, Oh, that's a subspecies. Now that's a subspecies classification. I'm not, I'm not trying to mer- argue the merits of hybridization or the, the problems of hybridization. That's not my intent with the argument. My, my intent with this argument is just to talk about um, the definitions that we place on things and the ways we choose to work with them deserve a lot of scrutiny i think at, at just at mm-hmm. best um i hope that well was... i think like the hybridization part i mean the, well the, the species concept of like if it um can breed and produce a viral offspring is like the, the most common one everyone knows but then you can have a cali king and then a corn snake on the opposite side of the country produce yeah. vile uh, viable offspring but there's but still, they're not categorized as the same species. So it kind of falls apart there. But I think mostly in captivity, in in herpetoculture, we're only like against hybridization for superficial reasons because Ooh. because it's like if you hybridize something and then it, that loses that label and it goes out to a population, someone who wants to, in their own hobby, enjoy producing like these group of animals that they want to call this, you might ruin their hobby for them sure. and how they like mm-hmm. enjoy it. But in terms of like, like king snakes, king snakes and corn snakes, yeah. everyone's like, oh, let's keep these, these like groups pure and this and that. But then they keep them on pine shavings in a, in a tub of water bowl. Sure. Across mm-hmm. every single species of, of, of all the lampropeltis and the milk snakes and the corn snakes. But if someone hybridized, a, a Cali and this and that. Some people might lose their minds, but that's wrong. But like, why? You're going to keep it the exact same way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Then, locality doesn't exist, in my opinion. Locality, locality doesn't exist unless you're con- you live in that area and you constantly have gene exchange with animals in the population that you're in. Otherwise, you have like a founder's effect of like the animals you take are only small a small amount of like genes that don't necessarily wholly represent that area and that the genes in that area are being shaped by natural selection and like the pressures of the environment. So do you know about like MHC diversity and things like that? 
Or at least I don't think so, unless I just miss miss miss. Correct me if I get this wrong. Is is it major histocompatibility complex? It's to do with like the immune system and it's like this this, this set of genes. Um, but it's even as niche as like some animals they will they can smell it on each other. Like horses, there's one study in horses where the animals would select for MHC dissimilar partners, uh, and there's other mm-hmm. structures of like some trout on this river where they selected for MHC like related partners because that meant that their immune system and their genetics was specific to that river's pathogens. So it's, it's so complex. So to to think that we even have animals that represent this locality, when as soon as you start breeding, creating animals and stuff, you're producing like something that drifts away from the wild anyway, because you're, you're not getting gene exchange. And then you might have alleles that are like recessive that wouldn't be exp- expressed in the wild um, because the population is more um, heterozygous than that. You end up with a founder's effect and it drifts in a different direction because things that wouldn't be homozygous come out and expressed because of the, the smallness of the population and inbreeding that occurs. And you end up with something that's wholly different from the locality in the wild anyway. So I, I Personally, exactly. like it's fun to think of it as, yeah. as being represented as this, but apart from just the funness of your hobby, it literally means nothing. Yeah, and and it and it is great. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to argue against anybody doing those things. Like, I think it's great. No, it's no, yeah, super, super fun, right? And it it has to, it even if it's nothing but fun, that's that's justification in my mind, right? To, if if that's where you're finding your fun, that's great. But like, it. It's one of those things where when it turns into um, like a moral choice where people are making it like a moral decision, you know, like, for example, I'm I'm one of the admins in the Euro Club on, on Facebook, right? It's the biggest Euro group on Facebook. I don't really do much as an admin. I just sort of like participate when and where I can and it's fun. And I, like, I'm not really on Facebook anymore. So I mostly just like approve posts and whatever. But um, the, 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 the group has a rule about hybridization. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's not, it's, it's against the group rules. If like you do this, you show you're doing it, you're not going to, you're not allowed in the group anymore. And it's like, well, I don't really agree with this rule. I didn't make the group and I'm not, I'm not solely responsible for changing any of the rules or anything, but that's a rule that I deeply disagree with. Not because I'm interested in hybridizing my euromastics, but just because who are you to tell people what they can and can't do with their animals and their participation in the group? Because they don't make there are no other rules about the way people, the what people choose to do with their animals that would prohibit them from the group other than that. And it's, and it's like, you know, I've made arguments uh, before about like, well, if we're going to say you can't keep, you can't hybridize your euros if you want to be a part of the group, then we should also be making other, maybe more impactful decisions about what we allow in the group in order to help like push forward a bit of improvement in, in, in within the group. And by that, I mean, being selective about which breeders we, we, we allow into the group, especially if they've, if they've repeatedly uh, been shown to, to treat their customers badly or treat their animals badly, right. Making decisions about like, well, if you, if you're going to come in and propagate information that we know is going to harm your animals, like, um, I don't know, it's like, it would be, uh, Frankly, be, I, maybe there's not like a great example, but, but I think you understand what I'm saying, right? Like if, if we see people behaving in a certain way, we're going to say, all right, you're not allowed in the group anymore. But if someone, if, if someone was in there who was taking excellent care of their animals, sharing really, really good information, and then chose to generate a hybrid, you're going to kick them out? Are you kidding Semantics. me? That's what yeah, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the guy, Douglas Dix, who 
you know, um, he doesn't really work with Euros anymore, but 20 years ago, he was one of the only guys, one of a, just a small number of folks in the United States working with Euros well. He hybridized banded and Moroccan Euromastics under the, the, um, uh, because the impression at the time was the orange banded Flava Fasciata Euromastics was a, a result of a natural integrate between Flava mm. Fasciata and Nigra Ventures. Turns out that may not be true, but those, mm -hmm. but like no one, I don't recall anybody like kicking him out of any groups or doing, you know what I mean? It was like, this is, this is like a reasonable thing to experiment with and understand, you know, like in the same way that we're going to get to uh, certain kinds of information by experimenting with, with our methodologies around keeping and ways of keeping there's probably a lot of information we're going to get to around certain certain kinds of experimental breeding within certain ethical bounds, right? Um, so I, you know, I just I I feel like a, and I and I feel like our 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 the current time in which all of us live at a time when herpetoculture is so new in a, still super new in a lot of ways, and there's so much more interconnectivity globally, and so much more interesting information coming out there. I think a radically open-minded approach to what we do and why we do it is, is an absolute baseline for participation in my mind. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought I had another question. I mean, I will, I will produce hybrids at some point. Um, just like I want to do like a lot of the king snakes, but I would put like a Mexican black king snake to a desert king snake just because I want to have like that one individual and keep and call it an integrate. It's not actually integrated because it's not actually represented by like genes that have been shaped by that like environment. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you just do it for you and like you just want to, and you're harming no one else's hobby because you're not, you're giving them something that they it's not what they wanted, and you're ruining the game they're playing with their their collection, if you will. What's the matter? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it comes up with, with, uh, with morphs too, you know, like, and it's been a, and it's been a, um, sort of like a hot topic on my radar for the last year, because I, uh, currently, you know, I've, I've like changed my stance on, on the way I think about morphs in particular, especially with regard to Euromastics. And I've gotten some, I've caught some flack for that. People have gotten really upset at me for, uh, like getting into the albino, uh, JRI, uh, as a, as a, as a project. And, um, the idea that I, like, I wouldn't immediately put in the freezer something weird if it happened, <laughs> you know, some, some, something here in, in my own collection if something weird hatched out, like I wouldn't immediately just cast it out as if it's some sort of weird heathen. Um, but it's like, it is one of those things where I'm like, I, you know, I just don't understand why we can't have our cake and eat it too. Like if you want to have the most nearly accurate representation of a wild type Euromastix or not a keep it, man, go nuts. Like if you like something, that's some weird crossover hybrid mutation, keep it, man, go nuts. You can have both things. You don't have to have one or the other. And, and I've never heard a, a cohesive convincing argument that tells me, well, if you do this, you're causing a risk to X, Y, or Z, you know? And I've just never, I've, I've never heard it. Um, I don't know. Maybe this could just be like ignorance on ignorance on my part. I'm not sure, but you know, at least as of yet, anyway, I haven't had anybody convince me effectively otherwise. Um, so I kind of changed my mind on a lot of things because obviously we, I obviously did a degree like to be a zookeeper and it's all conservation minded and all this like stud books and out, out breeding and, sure. and like, like very like that. Um, and like, 
I came into herpetoculture like with this mindset of like or conservation, blah 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 blah. And what I've realized is that there's very, very little conservation value from herpetoculture. It's only from like isolated circumstances. The vast majority of things have have been bred in a way where they're not going to be used for conservation anyway, unless it's in like isolated circumstances. Most things, what they're going to do is go get some actual founder stock and then breed them in a way that they're trying to breed them for a purpose in the wild. So there's a lot of our stuff, like the corn snakes and the king snakes and things that all, all your berms and your reed ticks. So many people are like, oh, I'm doing this conservation. It's like, no, you're not. Your animal that's like het for sofa, het for microwave, like it's of no conservation value whatsoever. So even things like that, I, I, I think the vast majority of our stuff is not, not worth diddly squat conservation. Um, and then... Like, like I said, locality and things like that, then it doesn't really matter that much. Um, the things that I think there are, they are worth, worthwhile is the education, like mm. people that will be killing snakes in the wild. You can like kind of change their mind by using like captive snakes that like would probably be bright and colorful and change their opinion because they're less scary or something. And I, at the end of the day, I think what the, the majority of what we're doing is just keeping pets. We're just keeping pets mm. and their purpose is to be pets for us to enjoy pets. So, for me then the only thing left in there is just animal welfare and that's the only that's the most important thing to me because when i go through this sort of process of elimination it's the only thing left to me that's even like important at that level if that makes sense um so i think I, i think there's a lot of um stuff where with the morphs and stuff, the reason that I think a lot of people don't like morphs, the actual morph itself and what the gene does to the animal, and most of it is absolutely fine. makes no impact. Apart from when it's like spider and things like that. But yeah. I think it's the culture around it all that encourages that's diminishing to animal welfare because it's, a, it's this race, this race to the end to like get your like and like your morphs out first before they drive the price down in this pyramid scheme and stuff and it, it's just this race that's crashed well well you, you've seen it in the royals this race to this crashed market and not only the welfare of how they're being kept and treated in like diminished con- conditions and impoverished conditions and then the rescue situation and the overpopulation we've I, I think that's the reason the culture has been created around yeah. it um, and again, I think that also comes back to the idea of this flatline, like breeders a breeder. There's no, like everyone mm-hmm. gets to use that word when like there's a lot of reptile milling going on, but you can't say that. Like you see a lot of people say like, "What's the difference between a puppy mill?" And people are like, "Oh, hang on, that's ridiculous." And they they try to be like, um, "Oh, you can't say that." So anything you say for now is ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, they might not be like covered in 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 filth in like got wounds and they're dying but it's still the impoverished environment for this race to make money it's like it's not mm-hmm. the same thing that you think of but puppy milling but it's still reptile milling it's it's milling for mass production it's not like what heather's doing dragoon geckos and i'm sure yeah. like you wouldn't consider yourself someone that's milling reptiles for what you do so I, there, like- there's degrees and i think it's just it all comes back to everyone's too scared to be like no no, there's a standard because everyone's mm-hmm. there's it's different because there's there's like everyone's stand like everyone's the same. A level of like everyone deserves to have and enjoy reptiles, but what you're doing 
doesn't mean it's the same quality as what this person's doing. Right. And I, I don't know, my brain's just gone down this road of like, we have, I think it's because we're so young as like herpetoculture as well. We haven't yeah. got defined boundaries and levels. And you look at aquaculture and, and like aviculture or like all these other things you described earlier, like they're very, very established what terminology is and what it means. I think part of it is just we're not there yet. It's very, very young, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There is and, a youth to it all for sure. Yeah. And and it's challenging because I think, um, you know, you, you spoke to something there a moment ago, Liam, about how if you say one thing that someone thinks is ridiculous or doesn't agree with, then they sort of like write you off wholesale. And, it, and it's like um, something that I think is actually really, really important is being willing to make mistakes publicly and just being willing to say, hey, no, I, I got it wrong on that one. My bad. You know what I mean? And, and being willing to say like, everyone does it. Like you point to me, someone who hasn't made a mistake, <laughs> good luck, <laughs> you know? And, and I think, um, setting that example and saying like, look, I've changed my mind on this. Here's why you might not agree with me. That's fine. You don't have to, we can, you know, I, I, I really don't think there's a, um, like, I don't think there's any reason why those things are like not are mutually exclusive. Right. You know, that like, um, I don't know that many people who, when they find out that someone is uh, like breeding dogs, like, and, and oh, I've been breeding golden retrievers for 25 years. Nobody's like, well, you know, how could you do that? Because there's so much, there's so many dogs out there that already need homes. Like, I can't believe you. I mean, surely there are those people, but it doesn't seem to be as pervasive as it is within mm-hmm. herpetoculture, like within herpetoculture, the second you get a morph, like, I mean, I posted that I got this albino J-Rai on one of my uh, socials on my Patreon page. And like, even though I got a positive response from it, there were people who were like, well, I, as long as it's not just about the paint job and the dollar signs. And I'm like, dude, wait, yeah, is anything else about what I'm doing reflective of that mentality mm. or mind <laughs> at all in any way, shape or form? No. And further, um, like you, you can have... I think Euromastics, just by their baseline biology, exclude themselves from that capacity. They don't produce in high numbers. They take a long time to mature sexually. They're difficult to breed in the first place. Like, good luck mass producing. Uh, trust me, as someone, <laughs> like, yeah. like, I can tell you it's not easy to do. And then, you know, people will point to that. You say, oh, you know, people used to think ball pythons were impossible to breed. It's like, yeah, there's a difference between thinking they're impossible to breed and them just quite literally not having the biological means to do so, right? Or like to do so at, at scale, you know? And so I like, I think it makes sense to take a step forward and say like, look, I might be wrong about this, but I got to try. Like you've got to try these things and being, and and like, I think, uh, the longer view you take, the more likely um, the mic, the more likely something like being willing to be open and transparent about your mistakes is going to reflect well on you or whoever you may be in the long term. It's people are going to be like, oh yeah, like look at this guy. He's like regularly changed his mind and updated his perspectives. Mm-hmm. This person, you know, whoever they are, have has regularly made decisions to take steps forward to take the risk to make an improvement. And I feel like it, it, it's just one of those things that maybe also isn't talked about that much. People don't talk about making those changes that regularly and you don't see it. It's, um, yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, there's, 
very rare any other hobby that refuses to change or is stagnant. Imagine if like cars, we were like, well, that's how it's done. Never change it. Like we wouldn't be where we are today. Yes. Dog training. There's so many, you always have to change and that's okay. And yeah, we can look back and be like, oh, why did I do that? That was really bad. Don't do that again. And right. that's okay because now we can reflect back on it. If we were still doing it, then we could look back and be like, oh dear. I haven't changed. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I can't understand this refusal to go forward because I just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think, I think maybe this has just popped into my mind now that maybe like some of it might be related to um, self image, I think. Oh, oh, for sure. That's definitely a big part of it. Absolutely. I, I also think there's um, cha- people are reluctant to make change because we're under the impression that our animals are incredibly sensitive and won't respond well to that change if you do it. Right. It's like, dude, I could like people used to think euros like you move a rock in their cage and they're going to it's going to freak them the fuck out. They're never going to they're just going to go off food for five days. And like, sure. I've had examples of animals where you move their cage around and they lose their mind. Like they, they, they disappear for three days, but it's not death. It's not the end of the world. They might do that in the wild. Something scares the hell out of them. They might not come out for three, four days just to stay safe. It might be the right move. It's not, it doesn't, it's not reflective of something wrong with your animal or wrong with what you've done. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yes, absolutely. Self-image. I'm sure that's a huge part of it. Yeah. I have, I have no doubt at all, but I just also, I also think that there might be like subtle uh, undercurrents that drive us to resist changing things because we're under, you know, because of false pretenses around what is and isn't good in, in your daily care practices. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to, I'm going to hit the restroom really quick. Keep, please keep talking. I'm so mm-hmm. sorry, I, but I'll be right back. No worries. Go for it. I think also it's like this willingness to, a willingness or non-willingness to, to use a vet and spend the money. Like mm. I have found myself, I, I, I find myself more willing to take risks and do things because I know I'll just pay for it. If mm-hmm. I make a mistake, I'll pay for it. Whereas if, well, I suppose there's a difference between not wanting to and not being able to. So if you're in a financial position where like, I wouldn't be able to afford like a major vet bill, then you're less willing to take risks. But if you're like, yeah, I can afford that. Let's take a risk. Cause this is different. It's different, isn't it? I think like I was saying about self-image, I think you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like I'm going to refer back to King snakes again, because that's, that's all mm. I talk about apparently. But, but, um, a lot of the old the old guys are really really rooted in and locked in and that's it no changing whatsoever mm-hmm. like like light stresses king snakes and i'm like i've got like four lights one two three four lights on this king snake and he sits out and basks and just goes about his day he does not care whatsoever i've got a board literally a big chopping board in the middle of it for him to go under and use it like 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 a a board and like they do in nature um he doesn't she doesn't care um and it's that sort of thing that is sort of like long-held beliefs and i think when it comes back to like the the self-image i think everyone goes through a phase of like they're the person in school or in life when their friend groups were like they're the crazy reptile person and they have this like expert knowledge because like the 
in the UK, legally, the, the definition of an expert is you have to know more than everyone else. So I think everyone has this self-image of, oh, I'm like an expert on like reptiles. So they they go through life and then they get thrown into the mixing pool effect culture when they join it. And everyone's got that sort of same mentality. And now it's like this sort of like dog pile of who can come out top as like the expert of the experts. Because they've always been like the person that like takes pride and got a self-image of being like that, that reptile expert. So I think yeah. if someone's been doing it for a very, very long time, and then all this science comes out or like the younger generation might be saying like, no, we're doing it this way. I think when you put yourself in, in their in their shoes, it's like, so I either have to accept this and realize maybe I haven't done it the best the entire time. And my self-image, I've built this entire, like, let's say 40 years has been like, I've been doing it perfect. And like, I know all there is to know. So mm-hmm. to accept that and move forward, your entire self-image and self-worth, because a lot of people like work, like value themselves on like being like the reptile guy. So you almost have to shatter that to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that aren't willing willing to shatter that to move forward. So it's like nope, even like to the point of denial of like when something's shown right in front of them, they're like no, like lights lights scare snakes, and I can just barrage like someone with lights of uh, images of them just like stretched out long basking under the brightest lights possible yeah and i think it's that it's they're not willing to shatter that that self-image and if, if you do you think did i just waste 30 years of my life like it's quite yeah, it's, when you put yourself in their shoes it's quite scary to do that totally i mean they've they, they you know i think a lot of folks have kind of like they they've dug in you know they've dug their little foxhole and they're like i'm not getting out of this <laughs> you know and I think about it, I mean, you know, you talk about, um, you know, snakes are scared of, like, king snakes are scared of light. And it's like, you know, I think about um, the process I went through acclimating my my wild-caught adult females, Belodi sulfurius, you know, and when I initially got them. And I had them in these large, converted, like, um, Christmas tree totes you know and they still had uh i still had you know uv lights in there and a halogen but the idea was that the tote was opaque and so i was eliminating visual stimuli you know from for the snake to try and help them settle down right and um and it was helpful it you know they 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 settled right in right away they started eating right away and there was a point at which i transitioned them to like a four by six uh bioactive setup and they went off food right away and part of the reason for that was that it was like it was just a shock suddenly there was this there's this new element of visual stimuli right and what i learned later on when i moved them into an even larger bioactive setup like an eight foot by three foot by five foot setup which they're in now that that was actually sufficient like they had sufficient space, there was like sufficient depth in the vivarium and everything for them to like actually settle within that space. But that intermediate enclosure, which still felt very large by my standards or, or the you know by the standard American standards at the time, um, you know, was 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 actually they still felt cornered in that in that amount of space. And I think about this like, you know, when people are initially acclimating, you know, stressed imported wild animals um you know 
they essentially have employed the strategy of like creating sensory deprivation chambers to help those animals settle down. And then that has somehow become kind of standardized as like, this is what these animals need to settle, (laughs) you know, to be, to be relaxed. But then if you're just doing that with subsequent captive bred and born generations over and over and over and over and over again, you're not actually cultivating that resilience to the visual stimuli, you know, in the animals that you're producing. And it's something that I've, I think about a lot, like with the, with the baby sulfurious that I have, you know, they're in these, these, uh, individually housed in these little condo setups behind me right here. And, um, I intentionally didn't put in like a very super tight hide for them in there all of the hiding that all of the um, visual barrier for them is just the foliage and the branches in the enclosure. And part of that is because these are like highly visually, you know, attuned snakes and I want them to be used to seeing me, you know? And, and so they've had that since literally day one, you know, they can still retreat down into the leaves and get, you know, get into a nice dark place and I can't see them very well but they can more or less always tell that there's something going on. And at this point, you know, it's like half the time I'm sitting here, if they're hungry, they're all up like (laughs) at the front door, you know, like, Hey, food monkey, we're ready here. And, um, I think that there's like some utility to that, you know, that, that like we can actually create animals. We encourage resilience in the animals to living in, um, in these conditions. And if we're actually, selecting for animals that like particularly want these like dark conditions, lack of visual stimulus. Um, we're actually selecting for like animals that won't thrive in these things, which is something that you have talked about a lot, you know, with ball pythons. And I think that is something is really interesting. I'm curious if you could speak to that cycle a little bit. Well, I, I think one of the biggest problems that causes a lot of the problems is failure mm-hmm. to recognize the intelligence of the animals, intellig- mm. intelligence of the animals, because I think a lot of the solutions to a lot of problems require you to acknowledge the complexity and the intelligence of the animals mm-hmm. to even value warrant, like implicating the solutions. Because let's say everything I describe about like, the intelligence of an animal and if you're keeping it in deprived state and it's had nothing you give it everything all at once and then it's like stressed and like well, what the hell's going on you have to acknowledge the intelligence of the animal and the complexity of the animal to even value that otherwise you're like a snake's a snake mate you're talking rubbish mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they they drink water they eat and like but, but this that refusal I think sometimes of like to acknowledge the intelligence of an animal stops you from actually being able to find solutions to some problems in the case yeah. of like one of the, one of my interactions in like royals that I remember is that there was this postness group and she was like I moved up in tub size for the snake and it's gone off food and mm-hmm. um, everyone was like you go back down, go back down and top size. It's too big. It's too big. And I was looking at these pictures and I was like, first picture, this snake's like crammed in there and it's like curled up at the back of this rack and all mm-hmm. sides of it are hugged by the rack. So it's like got that thigmotaxis and that nice tactile hugging, hugged feeling. Yeah. And yeah. then when it went into this larger enclosure, it could sit curled up in the rack, but not be touched by the sides. So, so I saw that and I was like, the thing that's changed there is that it can't feel 
like compact in a tight space. It's not got those right. that positive thick mate axis. So yeah. I was like, it's not the size of the tub, but just 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 provide a hide, and then you've provided yeah. everything that it had before. And and she was she applied to me and said, the the, the rack is the hide. And just dismissed what I said, and then was like, "I don't know why it's not." It carried on, and like, but because it's it's so like dogmatic and like this refusal to accept the intelligence of the animal and what the solution was very yeah. simple. If you actually realize that the animal does think and feel and is a sentient being, everyone was like, "Size the top. like." This rudimentary things of like, this is what I've been taught. This is what I've been taught. I've been forced down this sort of dogmatic lane of thought. And this is like yeah. dogma that's in, in Herb's culture. When the answer is like really, really simple. So I, I think a lot of it is, again, like I say, it's just this, this refusal to acknowledge that these animals are more complex than we thought before, which to me, I think is ridiculous because the studies going back to like the 1930s on snake intelligence, where they trained mm-hmm. king snakes to turn a pigeon key to gain access to water. They they did like so many different studies like of, of that complexity, of like that there's maze trial to do this, this, and this, and this. Burmese pythons recently were trained to press an illuminated button to to like get food. Like that's basically self-checkout at that point. Like yeah. so these animals are so intelligent, but they're being treated as if they're robots. And then people are wondering why mm-hmm. they can't figure out why, where the problems are coming. So when mm-hmm. it comes to like the, the royals, what I said was like, you're bringing these animals in these conditions that are so deprived that um, you're basically not allow them to use their brain basically when it comes to like um neural pathways and neuroscience it's the same as muscle it's either use it or lose it so mm-hmm. you deprive an animal like for ages and then shove it into like, this, this forefoot and it freaks out and goes off food and then people are like oh it's the forefoot rather than being like no it's how the animal was raised to be this this way i mean mm-hmm. people see it in dogs right some dog is rescued from some like puppy mill and then it sees grass for the first time and they try to walk it across and it's terrified and won't step on the grass everyone's like yeah. makes sense because they know what the trauma like is like in mammals and humans because they relate to it snake not possible mate but even though it's the exact same thing and like i said in this this talk i did the the way that the neuroscience works in terms of like learning and building neural pathways is the same in every single bit of tax that's ever been studied. Like it's in mm-hmm. literally like sea slugs and like insects, but for some reason, a more complex vertebrate, like a, like a snake or as two, two other realms of possibility there. Like there's a lot of herpt culture that is built on an illogical premise. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and there's other, you know, there's 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 two other things that come to mind there for me, like another layer, well, not even another another layer, just like another part of this, which is um like the idea that something might go off food for a short period of time as being a huge problem is insanity. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's insane. Like my uromastics will disappear for months for months in the winter time. Some of them come out bigger than when they went in. Like it's, and they're fine. They're the, they're totally fine. They're supposed to be able to do this stuff. You know, people will, will message and talk about how, well, I feed my Euro three times a day. And I'm like, what? You feed the thing three goddamn times a day. Well, he's really hungry. I'm like, yeah, 
Of course, if you put a Snickers bar in front of your kid every minute, like or every 20 minutes, hell yeah, let's go. It's Halloween, baby. Let's do it for America. You know, like it's, it's like, it, it's, you, you don't like your animal's not going to die if it doesn't have food for a few days. Like it's not a big deal. It's not going to die if it undergoes a little bit of challenge and like healthy stress, it's not going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, um, like give it, give it an opportunity to feel things. Right. And it, and it's like, you know, there's another thing, uh, I, you know, I also, I also think that, that in some, in, in it, probably in a lot of situations, um, maybe what, you know, like, I think, yes, you're right, Liam, there are definitely situations when it's just a failure to acknowledge the animal's intelligence. Sure. Like I'm here for it. I've seen it a million times. Absolutely. That is, that is a part of it. I also think another part of it is, um, just flat out, uh, not enough time with the animal. Like you're just like, Mm -hmm. okay, so here's, here's an example. And and this is something, um, I beat a dead horse on this all the time. Actually, it's a horrible uh, turn of phrase to use in this context. Right. But like (laughs) animal welfare, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) No, but, 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 but really, um, I talk about this all the time, but I, I, I feel like it, it's really apt in this circumstance, which is, I think Euromastics are really our best when they're housed alone most of the time for most of the year, right? You can give them lots of interaction and you don't have, I'm not advocating solitary confinement. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, uh, solo housing is probably better for them most of the time. And I, I people will fire back at me with photos of them hanging out together in the wild. I'm like, yes, but you don't know what time of year and you don't under, know under what circumstance. And you don't know the fact you, you're forgetting the fact that they can flee from one another at any point in time, whenever they choose, there's an abundance of, of resources. It's all there. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that will happen a lot is people will say, well, you know, where are you seeing this? Like, I never see this in my animals. I'm like, you have a day job, Right. And it's like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, got a day job. Yeah, it's because you're not doing Euromastics full time. You're not spending 12 hours a day around them. And I oh it is it is a visceral discomfort for me because I can hear the difference between an animal that's comfortable in its setup and an animal that is not comfortable in its setup. And I can hear it because they rip on the sides of the cages. It's like it is a frantic totally insane pace and you hear it when the animals are forced together and as soon as you remove one of the one of the animals from that context the other animal chills out and it calms down and it does it's not frantic anymore it's not this panicked like you like there is no other way to describe it than a panic if you hear it and if you're not home to hear the panic it's the old uh if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? You bet your ass it does. And it's the sound of a terrified lizard. That's what it is. I promise. Like, and, and, you know, uh, and I think that, you know, people have said, it's like, well, why do you think nobody really like, or there, why is it that you think there are fewer people who take that particular piece of advice? And I think this is plays into what you were saying, Liam, which is that um, people don't want to sacrifice the ability to have 20 lizards in a 10 lizard space. And, and it's yeah. like, it, it's not about the numbers, man. Like, I mean, it is about the numbers, right? Depending on what you're doing, numbers have to come into play and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I am all here 
I am fully on board for people's ability to make money doing this and to 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 have numbers as as a consideration in what they're doing. I I, I do I do it right. Like, but uh, there was a I had a professor in college who, through the context of generating illustrations, um, used to use a visual metaphor, which was so he called it the bounding box, right? If you have a situation in which you're given absolute freedom in what you're trying to do, it can be very, very difficult to nail down and get a, a clear direction on where you're headed. If you have a completely boxed in idea of what you must do, it's very difficult to be creative and um, uh, 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 generate novelty and, and, and um, invention, right? So you get a three-sided bounding box. And the three sides of your bounding box can have different names, whether that's deadline and medium and budget, or whether it's um, the message you're trying to send, the color palette you're trying to use, and the dimensions of your picture. I don't care what it is. That bounding box can have three sides to it, but the top has to be open because through that bounding box, through that guideline, you are directed to a creative and often satisfying solution. And I think that we can have that with herpetoculture. We can have a three-sided bounding box that has animal welfare on one side, human ingenuity and creativity on another. And then, I mean, I, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know, whatever you want. Like, there, you can have all of these things. And then through that, we can progress forward and generate a, a world and an, in, and an industry and a, and a uh like a way of life and a way of engaging in this that looks both ethical, fun, um, lucrative, interesting, educational, preservation and conservation minded. I mean, there's no reason that that's not possible. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm kind of losing track of where I'm going with this. I think I bounced around a little bit too much, uh, but I I don't know. I feel like maybe you guys understand. No, I get it. Yeah. It's like, you almost need to look like, like, say if there's no boundaries, you're like, how do I take a step forward? And I imagine the very first, like the beginning of herpetoculture culture is very much like that. We like, let's just try some shit and see what happens, I suppose. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then again, we, again, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, I suppose. Now we have our, our box there with the open lid, like you say, and now we can like skyrocket and spiral and get creative with it and do things like in a way that hasn't been done previously. But then if, if we were so like boxy, like you say, like a lot of people that are like, Oh, it doesn't say it on the care guide. Ugh. So yeah. I think with <sighs> things had to be done in a certain way before to get to the stage where we are now, where we have sort of like foundational knowledge of like, we can care for things at this level. We could do things at this level, but now we've got that locked in. We can go. Yeah. But mm-hmm. there, there, there's this like trope of like, how, like, why are you talking about going forward? Do you not realize what these people did for you? And it's like, no, we realize what people did for us, but it doesn't mean there's never ever going to be a point where we're like, okay, well, we could say that that needed to happen, but it doesn't mean in like this year that we need to be doing that that way now we can go forward now it's okay to leave things in the past but then still you know what i mean yeah oh yeah oh for sure i mean uh uh one doesn't really need to look very far into history to see examples of things that were perhaps uh not even perhaps were absolutely morally ab abject and abhorrent 
that have yielded progress and benefit for all of us now. I mean, it's not that (laughs) whether you're talking about medicine or uh, space Mm -hmm. travel, I mean, you name it, (laughs) some of it's built on the backs of some pretty horrific shit. And we can acknowledge Mm -hmm. that that was wrong and also that we got something from it without, you know, you can hold more than one idea in your head at the same time. It's not hard. You can do that. It's okay. <laughs> right. And it, and um, I, I do think, and, and this, maybe this will lead into some of some other questions that I know uh, we had here for you. And I know that Roy wanted to ask, but it's, but I think also, I think something that I've, tried to work on a lot and really, 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 really changed over the last, well, Christ, probably for the last 10, 10, 20 years of doing this has been my communication methods because man, oh man, like I've had every kind of interaction you can imagine from the Facebook argument to the shouting match, to the like, like going as far as I can to, to try to placate and, 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 and understand someone's position and, and, you know, I feel like really now I've come to, for the most part, almost all of my choices around how I communicate information is not just through a positive lens, but one that, as I've said many times before in this in this context, is like drawing a bigger circle, right? Like drawing a bigger 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 circle to include more people and not alienate more people because I've done the opposite. I've alienated the hell out of a lot of people in the past, and I've done it in ways that, like, yeah all right, kind of regret it now, but it was, you know, like we were saying before, you make mistakes in public and you live with it and you move on. Right. And so, um, you know, I know we've talked, one of the questions that, uh, well, maybe actually I feel like Roy should ask it because he's a, he's better with words than I am. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, kind of on this, this question, I'm curious, just like, I feel like I've noticed over, over the years of listening to your show, Liam, I've listened, I think since the beginning, pretty much, that there's been kind of like, you've had something of a tone shift from being like a little bit more direct and combative to like a little bit softer. And I'm curious, just like, how is that, how has that gone for you? Like what, what, what precipitated that shift? Cause I feel like there, there was a, I feel like I've even heard you speak to a, a shift, you know, like, like consciously making a shift in that at some point. And so I'm just curious to hear you talk about that trajectory and like how you've learned to like, yeah, just like be a more effective communicator for your aims of like, as you've spoken to amplifying animal welfare as, as you know, as where we need to progress. It's a very big question, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Um, but I think, I think it's like, really important because I don't know, I've just, I've just witnessed you on this journey. I think like, obviously, went to uni and everything, did all of that and like learned animal welfare and like learn things and the, the genetics and stuff of like inbreeding in populations, blah, 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 blah. Everything for this, for this like zoo mindset. Um, but that's just it. I was learned how to know it and do it, but I wasn't taught how to teach it. So mm-hmm. I was really just learning on the fly of making videos of figuring out different ways of saying things and the reception you get and how well you think that that works and then just kind of like shifting and shifting um and just like learning on the fly and just like for a process of like refinement and just finding ways of saying things even just like sometimes like simplifying things in a way that like 
I thought was like really simple and it was boring, but actually was what some people needed to actually understand what I'm saying. So um, in terms of like the, the combativeness, um, I'm, I'm still combative. I might just say it in a different way. Sometimes like earlier on, I was like, like I want to say something combative, but I want it to punch. Now I'm like, I'll say something combative, but the point itself mm-hmm. is enough. Like the 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 logic itself, like yeah, yeah. The logic speaks for itself. You don't need to like drive it in. Um, I just don't do it as much anymore. Although, depending on now and again, I might I might do. But for the most part, I I I think it's just easier to lead with just helping people, and then you create change that way. I mean, the the biggest realization that I've realized lately is that spent so much time to, trying to like combat and convince people that just don't want to change and mm-hmm. so i just realized recently the best way to do it is just for go focus on people that are beginners and just normalize things so now i've been saying like and like i've been making care guides and i've been like you want your snake to have your UV because it does this for them. You want a halogen because it does this for them, but it also like allows them to have the belly heat as well, but how you decorate care, uh, cleverly. And then like you want to be able to stretch out so they can stretch their spine, have agency of their own spine. And that's the minimum I recommend. And like people come into like herbs culture and they've just got, they want to get a pet like corn snake or something. And they'll, they'll watch that and I'm like, makes absolute sense. Yeah. Why wouldn't a snake want to stretch their spine? Cool. Okay. So, I've got, I want a four snake. I've got a four foot of space. So I, that means I want something that's like maxes out four foot. Cool. Um, rather than making videos being like, oh, we're arguing with these people today and this is why the logic matters. And rather than like being like, you've got to decide between these two things, which one's right. And then like in the sea of like everyone, like not on the same board on people might not understand science and it's just opinion or this and that and this and that just normalizing things that are scientifically correct from the get-go and then they do that they just go away and do that and they'll come back and they might hear something later on down the line they'll be like no my snake's been able to stretch out this entire time why would i think about putting it in an enclosure half its length that's just weird why would you do like I think mm, that's a better mm. way to do it. And I think that's the progress, the, the way we're, I'm trying to go now as well. So uh, in terms of combativeness, I just realized I was wasting my time as well. Like I spent so much time, like, like in th- common threads, rah, 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 and you just realize like, why am I wasting my time? Yeah. I mean, I can just totally. make a video and just affect new keepers and just affect the, the next generation of keepers, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's a very difficult question to ask because it's like a feeling almost. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I I have a lot on this to, to, that I, I feel like I, I want to say and, and because I, I relate, you know, on, on the one hand, um, especially, especially when we're talking about things that, that really matter to us, Right. Like, you know, when I see a, a Euro, oh Christ, like what like actually is, you know, I remember working at, at at a reptile shop here in Colorado called Reptilian Haven back in the day. And I remember people would come in with an animal that's just been brutalized for the last year of its life. And mm. it's clearly in pain. And it clearly like it's like, oh my God. 
And all you want to do when that happens is just shake the person who did it and say, what the fuck is wrong with you? You psycho. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a goddamn thinking, feeling creature. Why would you do this? Right. And, and look, there were times when that's exactly what I did. I mean, it didn't shake them. I didn't assault anybody, but, (laughs) but like, uh, there were times when I just had that reaction where I'd be like, look, you, is there any part of you that doesn't acknowledge that this is a thinking, feeling creature? And they'll be like, well, yeah, no, of course. I'm like, well, then just do fucking do better, man. It's not hard. Just do better. You wouldn't do that to your dog. You wouldn't do that to your kid. The sad reality is there are people who would do that to their dog and kid. Right. So it's like, it's, that's not necessarily a complete picture, but um, I think one of the times when I realized this was a long time ago, but there, it was working with collared lizards at the time. And there was a guy who uh, was like, sort of like a, just a, a contemporary. He, he was also working with collared lizards. Um, wouldn't necessarily call him a compatriot. We weren't really like friends, but we didn't hate each other. You know, it was just like a, we just were in the same area at the same time. And he posted a photograph that he had edited and taken a, a photograph of off of iNaturalist of a collared lizard, like a hatchling collared lizard of a specific species and had Photoshopped it into a terrarium a picture of a terrarium and posted it claiming that he had was the first one to breed these things in captivity kind of thing. Right. And I, myself and a couple of friends found the photograph because we like, we'd seen it before. We're like, I've seen this somewhere. Like, why do I know where I've seen this? So we found the photo on iNaturalist and the photographer. Um, and then we we took the photo that he had generated and posted it next to the original photo credited the original photographer and said, Hey, like pay attention to who you buy from. Cause this is not a cool thing to do to lie to your customers and lie to the people you're trying to work with. Right. And look, um, is that technically like the right move? Yeah. Is it technically, uh, is it 100% factually correct on every level? Yeah, absolutely. It's, this was, this was an absolute, this was just a, a flat, exposure. This was like an expose. Like I, here's the data. It's unambiguous. It's obvious. And we got 50, 50 on the comments, 50% of people Mm. were like, wow, what an asshole. I can't believe it. And 50% of the people were like, you know, it's really sad to see jealousy, like invade people who are really trying to do things with these animals. And I can't like, it's, I feel like you guys just shouldn't even be fighting. And it's like, are you not paying attention? Are you are you not paying attention to the fact that this asshole lied to you, and 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 subsequently took acts of revenge on myself and two or three other keepers that I know by uh, calling federal agencies and making false reports about them? Like, are you crazy? But and, and it was um it was mm-hmm. that moment when it was like I I have taken the most correct position I know how to take. And I didn't get the answer and the results I wanted. Mm -hmm. And it was like, holy shit. Like, I can't, this isn't, this is never going to work. You, I cannot, I can no longer take issue with individuals. I have to take issue with behavior and specific instances and specific actions. And I can't even call them out directly. I simply have to act in a way that is an example, setting an example, because other people will, you know, who are paying attention will figure out, well, 
that guy who I trust and who shows what he's doing and shows his work and, and, and is clearly doing a lot of good things says that what that guy's doing isn't right. He's not saying it directly, but he's saying that this kind of thing isn't good and that guy's doing that kind of thing. So I'm going to avoid that guy, right? As far as I can tell, that seems to be the most effective route. And it's so painful. It hurts to not be able to call out assholes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it like it, man, I just feel, you know, I just really feel like I relate to that as a, um, just in concept to, 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 to what you're talking about, how like, well, you, you know, you just realize it just doesn't really take you as far as you want it to, even when you're it, as right as you possibly can be. Right. It's, it's horrifying. It's, it's irritating. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. Like we, yeah. like I, I've had like, I think I'm on like the fourth death threat now. Um, just, right. just from that saying it's like it's factually correct and that's literally it and that's not even like that's not even a, like about someone that's just like a a, a thing like a yeah. scientific thing sure yeah i mean you had you you had similar didn't you really yeah. like you death threats really both of you yeah Jesus. i literally had someone who i used to know um and I got a call and I didn't know the number. And I just clicked like, hello, as I was like driving. And it, the basic like thing of it was like, you better stop doing what you're doing. Otherwise, these people want to know where you live and they'll come and find you and they're going to beat you up and you better be get scared. And I was like, oh, my God, like I'm just driving home. <laughs> like, wow. Whoa. Yeah. Dang, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I haven't had that happen yet. As of yet. The thing uh, is, I'm like the least combative person. I think everyone knows, like, I just I don't get involved with it because mm-hmm. I think I've learned through life and like there's so many studies and things that I've read about human psychology. As soon as you get combative, the other person, even if they're wrong, turn their brain off. They just will not learn. Um, you're actually like setting them in further because then they feel like they have something to prove. So you're literally prodding them into the corner to just defend it. Or if you kind of go, okay, fine. Well, this is what I believe. And if you just approach it with a question, why do you feel that way? Can you justify it to me, please? Um, They're a little bit more on the off foot because then they've got to defend their corner and you're the open one being like, well, okay, then. Come on, then. Um, So to have like such a response like i don't even start anything (laughs) it's me (laughs) that's crazy i definitely uh the death threat liam just likes to scrap too much you know get him over there (laughs) (laughs) i'll see something something, like kicking off in a group and liam's like oh share me the link i'm like no Okay. <laughs> you can't behave, so you can't have it. No. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's um it it's it's really bizarre. It's a it's a weird way to 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 have to go through things. And um, but I mean I, I, I can say too that I've I've also had the experiences where even when you're being as charitable as possible and acknowledging someone else's perspective and saying, like, hey. You know, like this, like this happened recently with, with, with a guy where, um, we just both happened to be admins in the same group. And I was trying to suggest that we remove someone for the way they're behaving and the way they were, um, interacting with their customers and the way they're treating their customers and their animals. And this guy was just, I mean, just livid, just 
like, you know, losing his mind about like saying, well, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. And like, you probably even shouldn't be an admin in the group because this is what you do for a living. And I was like, okay, it's actually kind of fair. Like I, I could totally see that being a conflict of interest. Like I'll consider leaving the admin group. And then he was like, you prick. And I was like, what? I, like I was, <laughs> I, what? I, I was like agreeing with you. I was like, I'm trying to say, like, I was trying to give you the acknowledgement that I understand where you're coming from. And I, and I, and I, I, I'm open to hearing your side of that. Like, and, and also, you know, like my defending my position is not uh, the same thing as demoralizing and demolishing your perspective. Like I can defend mm-hmm. myself without attacking you and without cut, trying to cut the feet out from your side of the argument. Right. We can mm-hmm. do those two things at the same time. And it, it was just like this. It was a it was a baffling argument. Like it was an absolutely. And I I didn't even know what to do. Like I went I even went so far as to say, hey, man, like I'll get on the phone with you. Like if I bet if we had a five minute phone conversation where we could speak to each other instead of just texting in the mess in messenger back and forth in this group. Like I bet we would have a we would come away with a totally different perspective. And and I'm not here to try to convince you of my side. I'm I'm just trying to help you understand that I'm coming here with good intentions. Like I'm almost always assuming good intent mm-hmm. from the other person who I'm speaking to. And, and it like, and it just didn't go anywhere. It didn't get, it didn't land. And, and I mean, that's fine. You know, so be it. I don't, I don't really care. Uh, haters going to hate as it were, but like, <laughs> you know, but, but it, but it's like, uh, uh, even in those situations when you're, you're really giving your best faith effort, in, in a given context, people can really undermine and just because, you know, they're not, you know, um, and I think some of that's just unavoidable, uh, you know, in, in some, in some regard, I mean, it's, it's, this thing is just part of it. You never, you're not going to be friends with any, everybody, even though I'd like to be, you know, <laughs> I really would like to be like, I hate having enemies and people that hate me. And it's like, oh boy. Or even better is like, I, I, I hate when people don't like me for the wrong reasons. You can dislike me and, and not like me and not agree with me, but do it for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. Uh. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a weird one because it's a whole skill set you have to learn. Um, and there's some people that have never even watch something you've made or know of you or have an opinion of you because something that someone else has like told them that you've done and actually like at a moment it's it's uh going around that like I'm trying to end the hobby, I'm trying to close shops, and I'm like, Am I? <laughs> I've just sold my last clutch to a shop and my I'm literally helping my friend who owned a shop to start a YouTube channel. So used to me just be like really oh okay <laughs> yeah i was just you just at that point you just ignore it and just crack on yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> i'm gonna start perpetuating that i'm gonna start commenting on it. <laughs> <laughs> liam's trying to end the hobby <laughs> stop trying to get rid of my business liam damn it <laughs> <laughs> yeah what i'm gonna try and do is end the hobby by making videos for people teaching them how to take part in the hobby yeah. So like 10 steps ahead, you can't even figure out what we're trying to do. <laughs> it's the perfect cover up. The perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, so um, I have a, uh, I've got a few other questions that I want to ask uh, with regard to sort of like the future. And, um, but I, but before we get on to what the future might look like and kind of, and, 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 and that part of the conversation, I'm curious if the two of you might be able to talk a little bit about, um, 
some of the influences, like positive influences that you've had both in herpetoculture and in life and like how that, how they've affected you and, and sort of like why? How people have possibly um, influenced yeah. us or the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, how and who? Um, well, you get like normal people um, that just kept something or they had something that was, you know, dying. And then you like, you jumped on a phone call with them and I'm like, do that, 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 that. And they did it and everything was like fine after. And they were like, oh my God. And I'm like, it's, it, like that's, that's nice. I like that. Um, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot, isn't it? Like, there's a lot of interactions you have in like doing like podcasting, especially like, um, I think the most positive inf- influence that like one of the big ones was Kevin Arbuckle, um, mm. with like folklore husbandry and the, the framework of like to approach that. And then also like, there's a, like, a recent way of thinking that I've kind of got to like a different framework. You could combine these two frameworks with this larger view of like how to operate within herb culture. And um, it's a very difficult question to ask answer because it's just so many. I think probably mm-hmm. Ellie is probably the one that's positively influenced me the most. Like me. I think, <laughs> just <laughs> I think um I, I, a lot of the um like you say about me, like having a different tone and stuff, um, mm. is Ellie's very placid and I'm, I'm not. So sure. I've kind of toned it down a little bit. So probably that. Um, and just some of the people we've met just from having it. There's so many people you you meet just from having like a podcast or a channel. Um, some interactions are like a fleeting and then you never speak again after you had a guest on. Some people are like, that's it. They're your friend now. Cause they've like been on the podcast mm-hmm. once and you talk to them every day on like WhatsApp or something. So I think that the people that stick around, like we, we've got a friend, um, Ashley, who owns a shop up, up North in the UK, who's the one that's also starting a channel. And we're constantly just like, we're staying up there. He's like, they're staying down here. Like, the friend friends you get, I suppose, from mm-hmm. from doing stuff like this, you didn't expect to be a thing. You just thought you were gonna sit in a room and talk about lizards and then just go on with life after you stop recording. Sure. And your life just goes in a different direction, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, that's a that's a that's a fair thing. I guess I I you know I I imagined uh I it's I always imagine that people have like maybe maybe a very short list of people who have like a, maybe like a really major positive influence. I mean, of course there's like great people all, all over the place mm-hmm. who are really nice and show you kindness and show you respect. And so I didn't know, I mean, of course, you know, uh, your answer was totally acceptable. I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to pry any further, but I just didn't know if there was, cause I, I think back from, you know, for example, like in college, like I had a, I had a, I had a, an art professor, Larry Kresick, who, He's got nothing to do with reptiles, right? He doesn't have anything to do with any of that stuff, but uh, he he's been a like a massively positive influence on me in terms of having mm. an open mind to various perspectives, um having an influence on me in terms of like regularly questioning and probing my own preconceptions about the world and like uh uh being allergic to certainty and being allergic to um 
like rigidity in ways because it, it bodes well for your future. And I mean, you, you know, like flexibility is more important than rigidity in various ways. Right. So this sort of thing, I mean, he, he was just that guy and, and I don't even think he knows, like, I don't even think he realizes that he had that effect on me, you know, in some way. So it, sometimes when, you know, I guess that's sort of what I was thinking. I didn't know if that, if anyone stood out for either of you in your life in that way, but, but of course, no, no pressure. If nobody comes to mind right away, that's okay. I think Lloyd Torini is the biggest one. Mm. Like the, the person I've learned the most from that like has just completely changed me as a keeper is Lloyd Torini. Okay. Mm-hmm. And can you elaborate on, on like how, like in what way, in what just, ways? Uh, the behavior side of, of like snakes, especially well snakes, because that's what she keeps. But, um, mm. and just the way I like see things now, it's like a different lens. I just see different interactions and just like head movements and just, I can just read my animals on a different level than I did before. I think I was very like cold uh, before mm-hmm. and it was very much like this study does this and this and this and this and this things combined together equals this. And and now there's a lot more in, like, in, like I can read and be a bit more warm in a weird way. I don't know how I'm trying to cold and warm, but this in like in the moment interactions are very much like I can just see the animals for what they are, regardless of like whether it's been laid out in some scientific methodology or something like that. Like there's things that I know to be true, even though it's not been proven yet. Like I know that these animals are more intelligent than they are. The things you can get them to do, even though it's not been actually written in the paper. Um, and just like, just seeing like how much the snakes bask like at the moment my snakes bask more than my beard of dragon because she's like summer in estivation but like mm-hmm. the the mbks and the and the, the cali are just constantly basking and you can almost be like something's going wrong because everyone tells me they're not supposed to do that so what's wrong with them mm-hmm. rather than being like just a case of it's a valued resource that they're valuing and that it's a choice they're making to engage in something that they're motivated to engage with because they value it. And mm. it's like, well, if they wouldn't value it. They would just move away from it. Just like little things that are more like training behavior side that like is really up to all for me. Yeah. That's cool. It's a great answer. What about you, Ali? Um, I think I really found myself when I went to Sparshall and the uni because mm. for a long time, although I didn't get bullied um, for liking the odd things, no one understood me. I'd be there like, mm. oh, and there's really cool little brown frogs. And I'd be like, and? Like, it's a brown frog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, yeah. like, when I went to uni and there was this tutor, Steve, and that was his favourite thing too, was the little brown frogs and... um it was like I found my people and I could like really become that because it was like, no, that's not odd. Keep going, keep going. Like there's so much to learn. It kind of was like a kick up um, my butt a little bit to be like, no, there is so much more to learn. Um, and it's okay to like really niche chameleon species. That's okay. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's extra okay. As a matter of fact, it's excellent. Encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> there's a big sense of purpose you get from it as well. Mm. Like I don't think a lot of people talk about like how much it does for you and like as a like a purpose. 
Mm-hmm. Like someone might be like completely dead inside from like some job they hate, but like they have animals that give them such a sense of purpose to come home to. Yeah, I think that that's something that is consistently like um, undervalued or just not talked about enough. You know, is is and that's part of why we ask. You know, our our closing question of like why herpetoculture. You know, and is it my that's my hope that people will speak a little bit to that. You know, like what are we actually getting from it? And when, um, yeah, I feel like purpose is a huge one. Um, I definitely think that like for me you know, I've spoken a little bit about just like my kind of like adolescence and how important herpetoculture was and just like keeping me well in this time of my life that was just otherwise really difficult. Um, it was like really because I had like this structure and, and yeah, purpose, you know, taking care of my animals that, that really helps me navigate that time. But I'm curious if like, like, are there other ways you feel like that the herpetoculture supports like your personal well-being for each of you? Have you watched it? There's a thing on Netflix at the moment called Blue Zones. Blue Zones. And it's about oh, yeah, people that yeah. live to over 100. Oh, yeah. And like mm-hmm. some of the things in there, it was like this sense of purpose. It was like these low level, like menial tasks that you don't really like gardening yeah. for a lot of them. It was like this yeah. activity, keeping your brain active. Um, and it was Ikigai as well, is one of them. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people, like, especially I'd imagine Phil now that he's made it is like like a job and income as well like keeping is like his ikigai and if people don't know what it is like you can google ikigai but all these things in this thing about like this long like life and like what makes people live longer a lot of the things that could be, could like I could describe herpt culture in that way this sense of purpose mm-hmm. this like low level like using your hands and exercise and like crouching down and doing this and lifting boxes and doing x y and z and like bags of soil that you're tipping out and just this like almost similar to like gardening and as the example um and then that sense of community was one of them as well you get that from herpt culture um and a lot of it i'm like it literally just transfers across and i was like that's mm-hmm. so weird apart from like diet and things like that i mean like that's different but I really feel like for some people, herpetoculture culture is their icky guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, it. it um, we we. So what? What have I just been reading about this? Uh, you know how uh, some folks, some people, like if we're, to, we're gonna, you know, not that we're going to get into this in depth or anything, but you know, when we talk about um, sort of like genetics and inheritance and culture and, and tradition and all these things that all kind of intertwine in ways that maybe we don't fully understand quite yet, but in ways that we have some like base uh, or shallow understanding of. Uh, I think that I, a lot of times I've been thinking a lot about how probably one of the things that compels me to do this is some sort of weird comment constellation of genes that has to do around farming. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. some weird, like I've got to have some kind of weird, like, you know, I'm Japanese, Korean and Sicilian. I've got to have some weird, like koi farmer, olive farmer genes <laughs> somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, <laughs> like, there's gotta be some sort of bizarre fusion of all these things that like keeps me like it, I, I can't even explain the kind of reward it, it gives me, you know, I, I, and it, and it cuts both directions, right? Not, not only, not only is it beyond rewarding and fulfilling when you see some sort of great thing, whether it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. I've never seen a Euro do that before, or, oh, 
oh god i love when they just like when they all just come piling on and ripping on a piece of of greens or something it just makes me so happy it also cuts the other direction too when i see a whole clutch of them frantically running away because they're all fighting mm-hmm. like oh, oh god i gotta I can't do this it sucks i hate it oh my god and then i have you know you have to split them all up and everything and it drives you crazy so it, it's um you know I, there's got to be something in there there's got to be some kind of you know it's, that that sense of purpose has to come from something 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 weird and way way deep deep mm-hmm. deep there was actually a study that they're trying to do where there is an animal care gene in people that yes. is actually mm. like an inherited thing. And that is why for some people, it's literally a life purpose. They can't be without it. And then other people wow. have literally the same experience. Uh, for example, my little sister, she's not an animal hater, but she just has no interest. Like she's like, yeah, yeah, that's all right. But she just <laughs> doesn't understand me at all. Um, sure. Because maybe she didn't inherit that gene and I did. Um, it's an interesting concept that like because when we first started a civilization we had to have those farmers who dealt with the animals but we also had to have those people who wanted to do different things otherwise it wouldn't have been a complete picture yes oh that's exactly. what i just like remember psychopaths isn't it yeah yeah, oh, yeah 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 exactly i'm totally i am i am also very likely a psychopath no, <laughs> <laughs> i mean from the state of like psychopaths had like a purpose of like yeah you, you're the one that always talks about it. you explain it because you're on the digital justice more than me um they say like one in a hundred people are a psychopath sure. um and as long as they like that need for a purpose is there as long as they've got that purpose fulfilled then all of their needs are met. The problem you have with them is when they don't have that purpose and they go off the track. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting. I am, yeah. You did not explain what I was expecting to explain at all. Okay. <laughs> I meant like, like people that would go off to war and things like that. Like, oh. like... Yeah, so society needs psychopaths because they say that all heart surgeons, all brain surgeons, all of these people that do these what would be like a really emotional damaging job mm-hmm. to have to do surgery on someone and kill them. Yeah. Um, these people can do it. And we, they're so important to society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, was yeah. that it? Yeah, that was what I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We had, uh, we had, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. I thought I, I thought I cut you off there for a second. My bad. But um, we had on uh, David Ian Howe, He's a uh, ethnokinologist, um, and he's a really brilliant guy, really interesting dude. We had a really long conversation with him. It was really fun. And I was showing, I have a my I have a, a, a an employee, Brendan, who we also had on the show, who helps out at, at at the shop. He's my employee now, and he's really great. And I was showing him one of uh, Dr. Howe's videos um, where he talks about sort of like the history of dog domestication and stuff. And there was a part in the video where he's discussing how uh, as soon as we had situations where there was going to be someone in the village who was very, very good at making arrows and someone in the village who was very, very good at, uh, you know, like, you know, making, making bags or like someone who was really, really good at like building your, building your structures or whatever. As soon as you had specialization, he said there was probably that one person in your village who like had great dogs who like bred dogs and had the best mm-hmm. dogs. You could go get your hunting dog from him. And even if he was like a few villages over, you might go over and be like, dude, I heard, I heard you're the dude. I heard you're the man. Like, let's go let me get that dog. Right. And uh, I was thinking about how it doesn't take much imagination to think like a slight tweak in that kind of gene 
would be like, well, for me, it's not really dogs. It's these obscure lizards from the Middle East. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm, I don't know. I find that uh, highly validating. Like I feel seen when I, when I see stuff like that, content like that. I'm like, all right. Like, (laughs) America, yeah. Um, all right. It's getting weird. And I now. think that, I mean, I think also too, like crypto culture feels like uniquely able to meet a lot of different like niches for people because it's such a multidisciplinary, you know, endeavor. You know, you're learning about so many different things. And I think that there are some people that actually get like a lot of what they get out of crypto culture is like, uh, I've I've referred to it before as like being in a process of like adaptive management, but basically just like constantly tinkering. <laughs> you know, I feel like mm, there are some yes. herbiculturists yeah. that are just like that's all they're do- like they're just tinkering all the time, you know, and ex- and experimenting. And I think that that's a very human thing. You know, yeah. some that are like very attuned to the actual the animals themselves. Um, you know, and I don't know. I think that that's just such a rich thing about it that, especially these days, you know, I think that like. Um, the kind of factors of modernity and civilization have actually narrowed the like acceptable parameters of like what people can do, you know, with their lives. You know, it's like you have to fit into these kind of boxes. You have to have these, like, these are the, these are the career options you have, Um, you know, and like, I know plenty of people that don't want a career at all, <laughs> you know, that like just want to do, want to do something else with their lives. And um, I think that that's really valid, you know, and that there's, there's, it's important to like be able to catch those people in other ways because it really does feel like, you know, like with kind of like the mental health crises that we're seeing, you know, throughout, you know, Western civilization, just, you know, or I, I, I'll, maybe I'll just say throughout North America, cause that's what I can speak to. I think so much of that is just because people are like slipping through the cracks. They don't find, they don't feel that purpose. They don't feel like community and connection that they need. And they haven't got their, I think they're herpetoculture. Yeah. And I think the herpetoculture actually provides that for a lot of people, you know, who are otherwise like stuck on the margins. I was listening to this really interesting podcast. um, And they were talking about the fact that we evolved to be in a community and like within our community, everyone would know you and everyone would make you feel valid and seen. And the way that society is now, we don't talk to our neighbours, we go to a shop and we don't exist. And that that sense of community is lost. And I think a lot of people find that in the reptile community, that suddenly mm-hmm. they're seen and they have people to talk to and what they're doing is valid. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it gives people that purpose, like you said, because in our modern society, we've just gone that far away from what we ever evolved from that we're living in a world that's incredibly alien, but we don't realize mm-hmm. how to get out of that kind of cycle. It is yeah, that's all like part of like what you are as a species, I suppose. And I guess that's why all the tribalism comes out in herbs culture as well, because mm-hmm. it's all in that, that raw yeah. core that it's managing to hit, I suppose, in that, in that metaphor, yeah. if that makes sense. Oh yeah, definitely. It's that it's that uh, mismatch between our evolved biology and the environment in which we find ourselves in, which is sort of a an ongoing refrain that we that Roy and I both personally and professionally keep coming back to. In, in, in yeah, a, you know, it's, yeah. it's. I feel like we we have like a, a minor obsession with that particular that that particular thing, and I'm I'm always every time uh, I read or listen to or watch anything that has to do with that particular topic 
um, I'm always finding ways to plug it into herpetoculture, right? I mean, yeah. like, it's like, I'm always, even if I'm just reaching, I'm like, yeah, no, I could, I could totally make this work for herpetoculture, you know, because <laughs> I, I am also good at pushing my agenda, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think when it's like the gene, so like you, a gene can like basically make you have an affinity towards something. So like, but that's different from learned behavior. So like, mm-hmm. let's say you've got an animal that's got like a, like a, genetic propensity towards like sweet food sweet tasting food like that makes them want it but the learning is them learning how to like get it mm-hmm. so that means that they're adaptable so like even though they're from this part of the world and you shove this species that will be invasive in another part of the world like they still have that it's not the genes and the, the robotic genes that make them act this certain way in, in, like, in the world and as an animal it's their adapt- ability to adapt and learn to feed that mm. gene almost. So they go to mm-hmm. a new environment and their adaptability and learning behavior, how to crack open something they've never even seen before, or like their ancestors never even encountered, but still manage to do that because the learning element. Um, so I think like if we have that gene in us, that's like um, that, like animal caring and farming, perhaps we've all got that gene, but instead of like dogs or cats or something, the way we learned to feed it just happened to come through reptiles. Sure. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. great. I really, I really I love like that. that. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where the, uh, the, 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 oh, wait, no, I lost my train of thought. Wait, 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 come back to me. Hang on. Roy, say, <laughs> I, I totally lost. I lost it. Uh, come back to me in a minute. Roy, say something. Help. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, I was going to ask another question and kind of pivot us a little bit because we're, we're, we're right at like two hours right now. And I know it's much later where you are than it is where I am being in the UK. Um, although I'm also in the UK, according ah, to Ah, Dude, I was going to make the joke too. You got me. Well, but before, okay. So I remembered kind of what I, what okay, I was you did. Perfect. I mean, it's like, um, I think you also, you're getting at something else there, Liam, which is, um, like the idea that it, it, you know, like living creatures are not just like a plug and play kind of thing. Like I don't have to plug in mm. a Euromastix flash drive into a Euromastix Macintosh if I plug it into a Euromastics PC, it's not going to work. It's like, that's not reality, right? Like these, like, just like us, there's a, there's a range of totally viable environments, circumstances, and contexts in which animals can thrive, survive, and be otherwise completely healthy and happy. Like it's, it's a, it's a lot larger range than I think people give it credit for. Right. And, and I think this kind of thing should make us profoundly open-minded uh again coming back to that whole idea like profoundly open-minded to the ways in which things can thrive i mean you know like even even just the idea of something being like native or invasive is like a weird concept in some ways right it's like at what point did a fiji bandit iguana become native when is it endemic and when is it something else it's like well there's probably like a huge number of factors there like it's not just one it's not just how it looks that's for sure you know like it's probably in a multitude of different things right and um mm-hmm. you know i was just talking with with brendan my employee he brought up this really interesting idea like you know we have this concept of of finding your lifer if you're a herper right like it's like oh this is my, i found my lifer speckled rattlesnake in arizona in this mountain range and i did it whoa whatever um if you find if like if your lifer is a Burmese python and you find it in the Everglades, 
is does that count? Because they're not native to the Everglades. It's like, well, but it's a it's a wild Burmese python. Like, like okay, now I need to make a distinction between am I going to have my life or Burmese python in the Everglades or my life life or Burmese python in Burma, right? Like, and, and it, mm-hmm. like, and, and why is that distinction important in that context, right? It's like obviously I don't, you know, I'm not like psyched on Burmese pythons, right? Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, no, saying, okay, yeah, yeah. No, it's just like it's it's fun to kind of to like like push and pull these concepts that we, everybody, we all just take for granted, you know, and I'm not, not we all like, obviously there are lots of people who don't take it for granted. I'm not trying to blanket everybody with the same or paint everybody with the same broad brush. I'm just saying that, you know, um, it's like this, uh, you know, it's like, why do roofing tiles work so well for your amastics? You know, it just fits the bill, man. But that it's not, that's, there's nothing wild about it. Right. It's like, it's totally weird. Well, even that's really arguable, but yeah, I don't know. Does that kind of make sense? What I'm getting at? It was a recent paper recently that that kind of just like maybe see everything differently. And just, so there's sort of about the natural uh, natural behaviors and like natural behaviors. Um, and again, it's like an animal's needs and what they do to get those needs are things they're motivated to do to achieve the end goal of like feeding into those needs so just because something's something's ancestor might not have ever experienced roofing tile yeah yeah but the the concept of whether it's natural or not doesn't matter it's just the animal value it so it just happens Mm -hmm. that when we we got into this like oh natural behaviors it means that because their wild counterparts do this frequently in the wild it's very likely that that's what the animal values in captivity but it doesn't mean just because it's natural that means it's like the epitome like like your roofing tiles like that just because that's non-natural it allows the animal to do what it's motivated to do so just because like it's not natural doesn't matter the animal is being able to value and then be motivated to use a resource that fits its needs yeah. It just so happens that a lot of the case, um, you can make the assumption that something natural will fit in captivity, and it does because that's like, uh, like a natural history element. But you can also mm-hmm. like properly test things and te- and preference test and figure out what an animal actually values. And a lot of the time, that might be something that you considered natural, or it might be something different. But in in, in the end, how you should care for it is like what it actually values and what is what matters to the animal. Right. 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 Absolutely. Well, uh, so I know as Roy mentioned a moment ago, I know we're get we're creeping up over two hours here. We want to be respectful of your guys' time. And, you know, I know it's, it's later. How, how, what time is it there right now? Uh, 10 past 10. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's late. Not, not terrible. Hopefully not too bad, but uh, we definitely want to be respectful of that. And, and maybe we'll start like winding things down here before we, before we do, um, we should talk though about uh, uh, um, Hills Herp Tiles, uh, if you if yeah. you would. So if you would, Ellie, what is it? <laughs> um, basically, I decided to just do my own channel for varying reasons. Um, the camera is something that I'm really uncomfortable with. I don't like it. Um, I rely incredibly heavy on Liam. I don't pull my weight in interviews at all. <laughs> like, there's some videos that you watch and I might have had like three sentences in them. 
So it's it's a quest to find myself in that aspect. But mm. also we are very different. Like, although we do things together, my interests are very different. I have frogs. I do a lot of like rehabilitation. I do a lot mm-hmm. of like training. Um, so it's just like also to allow me to just showcase a little bit more of the things that I do in my everyday life, like that never appear in Liam's channel. And there's a lot of, I feel that people feel I just appeared on the channel and why am I there? Like, I don't ever showcase mm. the experience that I have or the fact that I've been in the game a long time or that I've done all of these things. So it's just a little bit more of like able to say a little bit more about me, I guess. I think it's because like you're like some, some of the things that, that you have taught me and that you're so much more qualified than I am, but because I just am very confident, like I'm so used to this now and I'm like just confidently allowed to like allow myself to speak and you're so withdrawn. People like assume that because you're not speaking, that you don't have anything to say. But as soon as like a camera's off you, I can tell you that like Ellie has the most to say about people like, that I talk to Mm-hmm. Um, ninety nine percent of the time, it's just that as soon as the camera's there, like, it's just like, no, like, yeah. So everyone's like ex- thinking that like I am the intelligent one, and I'm not. <laughs> I am not. Um, so I think like if you have a channel, mm-hmm. it's just at your own pace, and there's no one to like compete with in talking in a video. Um, and you, yeah, I think as soon as you're really like comfortable with the camera, you're gonna be off to the races so. yeah like um the whole like racking cycle and things like that as a video mm-hmm. i also contribute to that but because i wasn't confident yeah. enough to have my speech i can't present it that completely got lost and everyone's like not that i want to be there and be like that was mine as well but it's yeah it just completely gets lost in anything yeah. that i contribute to half the video stuff a lot of the concepts that like Liam talks about have been me being like, oh, this paper, this study, and I've explained it to him, and then he's gone away and done a video. It just mm-hmm. completely gets lost. So I could be like, and Ellie said this, and Ellie had this idea. And everyone's like, great video, Liam. And they're just like, that's it. Like, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm really excited to see like what you do with that and where where it's gonna head head out to. Uh I'm gonna have to subscribe and whatnot. I mean, that first video, you could tell I'm literally like dying on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'm like, I was literally <laughs> editing it, be like, I hate it. I hate it. So mm-hmm. I can't promise good videos. I'm just saying I'm also dying on the inside. So. <laughs> I, I think your I first is going to be a bit rocky anyway. Any yeah. I mean, videos. And I relate to it. I'm not comfortable with the camera either. Like this is, I would not have ever started a podcast if it wasn't for Phil, you know? And like my, my, like the feeling of like, okay, Phil can, Phil can carry a lot of the weight here. <laughs> Come on, dude. You know? So I, just to say like, I, I get where you're coming from and, and like, just like, oh God, this, and it's hard because it feels like almost on some level, like to feel like, like a relevant contributor, it almost feels like we have to, <laughs> you know, like, like I, I, I know like Phil and I were just talking about this actually yesterday, but like, like I was like, I think that like my baseline mental health and everything was like 
better before I was on social media at all. And like the only reason why I actually got on social media was because of wanting to be part of the herpetoculture community and feeling like, like it's really hard to like feel like you can be a relevant contributor in the herpetoculture community without being on social media and like participating in like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and all these things, which, uh, which up to, you know, that point I had, I had managed to um, avoid. So just, just, just to say I'm with you and all that and looking forward to seeing your content. Yeah, it's going to be great. I can't wait. And uh, don't, don't sweat it. Like don't, uh, I encourage you, I would encourage, I mean, not that you, not that you asked or, or need or, or <laughs> advice at all, but I, like, I think it's really rad when somebody tries to go after something that they're not exactly comfortable with and like, you know, tackle, tackle something that's outside their comfort zone. I think that usually tends to yield, um, like excellent results. So, uh, kudos yeah. to you for doing that and keep after it. For sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> <laughs> literally at work like um i'm a manager now and mm-hmm. the other managers are like trying to give me positive feedback and i'm literally like <laughs> yeah oh god <laughs> for sure yeah yeah i i i can relate there's like something that i um there's a poet i forget what the, the name of the poet but it's a really amazing irish poet i I'm, i feel bad that i've forgotten his name in this moment but um he's talking about like uh receiving compliments and it's like, um, like you let it in, but you don't inhale. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like how I feel about compliments. Like, I just, I can't, I can't let it in. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Anyway. Uh, highly, as a politician's answer, Roy, how dare you? Yeah. Well, also, I mean, also it's making fun of Bill Clinton, right? And the I know, whole, like, I know. You know, marijuana thing. So I think that's also pretty funny. But anyway, yeah. um. Yeah. Besides the point, I think that we should get to our closer question and let y'all have a break. I know Ellie's squirming to to be uh, freed from the camera. Yeah. So um, the the question is the same. I, I'm sure you've heard it, and that's just uh, why herpetoculture. And I'd love to hear like from each of you individually because I'm sure there's some distinction. You want me to go first? Oh, I think. Oh, go on. Off you go then. <laughs> um, it's a little bit of a, I suppose, a deep answer in the sense that I've always felt like I was misunderstood, that I was the weird, quirky one. And I just really sympathize with animals that people undervalued and that they mm. get looked over so much. And I always like was in tune with these animals that were treated really poorly because they were so misunderstood. I mean, my first animal that I ever got that was a reptile was a chameleon and it was a rescue Mm. chameleon that was abused. It's just always been animals that are so underrepresented. Like that's why I've had like tennis whip scorpions and things like that. The animals that are almost like vilified. I've always felt really sorry for. I vilify those things. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I like them. They're great. That's that's cool. That's a really really good answer. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to. I, I the only reason I said Ellie first is just because I I was I, you know it just seemed like it made sense, right? Uh, can you? Oh god, <laughs> you, what, you guys didn't hear the my phone ring like at the very beginning of the podcast, did you? Did you hear that? 
Oh, my phone just rang again and I was freaking out. So anyway, anyway so sorry. Okay, Phil. Uh, Liam, I would yeah, let's hear your your I your... think the answer is probably just sneaky guy. I think like it's just mm. fits the bill. Like you wake up thinking about herbs culture and reptiles and you go to sleep thinking about herbs culture and reptiles. So I I think icky guy, yeah. I think I've just found my thing. That's mm. that's really it. Like purpose really. Awesome. It's a great answer. Both of you actually. Great answers. Right to the point. Succinct. I like it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, well uh, I mean, uh, I was going to say this kind of feels kind of silly because I think y'all are a larger platform than we are at this point. But where can folks find your platforms um, on socials and all that stuff? So, Rip Doesn't Research, you can find it on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Um, and obviously YouTube is the main one. You can find it on obviously the Animals Own podcast alongside you guys. I mean, if people watch you guys and on the Spotify, yeah. they probably have seen our episodes. If they don't listen to them, that's where we are. Um, and obviously YouTube Reptiles and Research um, is what it says on the tin. It's, it's research <laughs> and reptiles um, and very similar content about probing like ethics and what we think about herpetic culture as well, as well as what you guys do. And yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Those reptiles. <laughs> you find <laughs> me on YouTube. <laughs> um, yeah, I've only just made the YouTube at the moment. I do have like an Instagram and a TikTok, but they're under the Bonoffi Pie Projects, which is mm. um, something that I've always had. Um, but yeah. Sick. Awesome. There you are. Wonderful. Thanks, Thanks y'all. Well, uh, Thank you guys again. We really, really genuinely appreciate the time. Uh, lots of time. Thank you. Uh, Roy, do you want to hit the button? before you Yeah, guys... I'll hit the button. Thanks, Thanks again, guys. y'all. Where is it? Okay, I found the button. <laughs>